This is the second truly unique book that I've ever read on consulting. The first is Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss, which I read almost six years ago now in the fall of 2018. Uh, that book changed my life and enabled me to get my business off the ground the following year in 2019. And almost five years later, now in 2024, uh, I've read both of Venkatesh Rao's books, Art of the Gig Volume 1 and Volume 2. And today we're going to focus on Volume 1, uh, but there will be another episode on Volume 2, so don't you worry about that. And while it's still early innings, my senses Art of the Gig will, be, will have an equally profound impact on my development and business as MDC did, Million Dollar Consulting. But the impact's going to be different. I feel like MDC was very much a zero to one book. It teaches you value-based pricing, how to write a kick-ass proposal that will get accepted. And it does what it says on the tin, right? It absolutely delivers on that. But Venkat's books are almost intermediate to advanced level books, which there really aren't enough of anymore in today's society. There's so much, probably too much, zero to one content out there AKA, how do I start? How do I begin? Where should I start? Where should I begin? Uh, and there isn't nearly enough. Okay, I started. How do I stick with this? Level up, stay in the game. Which is such a shame because although the former audience uh, will always be, la be larger than the latter audience, in other words, there will always be more people thinking about starting a business than actually starting a business, the latter audience is actually in the arena said differently, they are actually the legacy holders of the ideas that sit in these books. And I'd argue, therefore, that authors should actually be interested in giving them the most support, especially because the going gets tough. And once you start a business, you aren't the bright, shiny new thing anymore. So if Million Dollar Consulting was about concept and process, uh, Venkat Rao's Art of Gig Vol 1 and 2 is all about practice and philosophy. This is the first meditations episode I've ever done. This is an episode where it's just me talking through my thoughts on a topic without any external guests. So I'm sure it will be far from perfect, uh, but my goal here is, is very simple. I want to share what I think are the most timeless and evergreen ideas presented by this person, which in this case is Venkatesh Rao as an author, and then share the frameworks, the quotes, and the insights that I don't think you'll get anywhere else other than this book. So there's no other book, podcast, blog, or video that I think gets to the things I'm sharing today. So it's a high, high bar. And then I'll explain why I think they are important to me and you in our work and our lives. That will be the structure of the meditations episodes here on Everyday Radio. Does that sound okay? Brilliant. Let's get into it. So why is this book so good? That was a note I wrote to myself on my Apple Notes when I started reading these books in Q4 of 2023. And I've, I've had some time to meditate on the answers here, and I want to share three with you. So I think the first reason that this book is so good, emphasis on the so, is that it's a topic that nobody's really touched from what I'll call a first-person shooter level. This book is written by a guy, Venkatesh Rao, who's still very much in the game of independent consulting. Um, he is in the game. In many ways, he's redefining the game, right? And he's been doing that for a long time. So he isn't writing this book from a kind of retired hindsight 2020 level or, or vantage point. 
which is when 99.9% of business books are written. So that's number one. Number two is that the author just tells the truth and nothing but the truth. And I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous and I'm not suggesting that other authors don't tell the truth, but this book just smacks of truth. And the word of Cat Williams, the truth doesn't need any motivation. So the first point being it's first person shooter. Second point being this book is just the truth. It's full of truths. But third, it's got such a depth that you will read a passage and you'll be like, wow. And then you'll be like, okay, it's going to be years before I actually understand all the multidimensional meanings of what was just said. And I compare this to listening to a great album or a new album from an artist you love. And, and sometimes you listen to that new album and you're like, oh, geez, it ends here, doesn't it? I don't like it. And then 15 or 16 listens later, you're like, oh, this is incredible. How did I not hear this the first time? Right? Like, why didn't I think this, is a, this song was a banger on day one? So I think those are some of the reasons that the book is so good. And then I do just want to say that I love that Venkatesh opens with the fact that this book is really just a reflection of the idiosyncrasies of his story. So it should be a guide as opposed to de facto gospel. There are many authors, many books, and many ideas that I think would be better absorbed with that type of framing. So that's why this book is just so, 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 so good. I said at the top of the meditation, I promise that what I'm sharing are the areas I think are truly timeless. And so truly timeless for me is something that will be as good in 10 years and 20 years as it is today. And timelessness really comes from how does this sound or feel compared to what I've read, listened to, or written about before. So it really is being indexed and compared to not just my entire library of books and videos and content, but also everything I've read about this specific topic. Um, and for me, there are three truly timeless areas in The Art of the Gig, Vol 1, and I'm going to bring you through them. So the first is an area that I've called sparring, uh, boxing your way to differentiation. Number two is guru versus pundit, being quiet versus talking loud. And number three is anti-indie, building your Mandalorian armor. These are areas that I've created. They aren't chapter titles in the book, but they do pull from a lot of the themes and the chapters that you will see if you actually end up purchasing this book. So I'm actually going to structure this episode around these three areas. So sparring, Guru vs. Pandit, and anti-Indian Mandalorian armor. Uh, but I will say as a general note, I just love how Venkat leveled up the conversation here around gig work um, into what he says is a full stack conversation. In other words, the gig economy has been around for a long, long time now, right? even though it isn't new and we all know what it is, very little's actually been said about the levels it presents. Usually the only type of media we read or consume or share is around the first level of the gig economy, which is just-in-time delivery, right? Food delivery or transportation. Think of Uber. But in recent weeks and months, and, and really I think post-pandemic, there's been a bit of a change I think Venkat's book is certainly a step in the right direction, but the overemployed movement, hashtag overemployed, you haven't seen the Reddit thread, check it out. I think that has actually really driven the gig economy into a new light. 
And that is to say that we live at a time where knowledge workers can actually achieve so, so much. Technology, capital, and labor present such tremendous leverage multipliers for quality thinkers and knowledge workers. And if we can master a piece of each of them, we can not only be economically free, which is a big theme of this book, but also create conditions for really beautiful, deep, independent work. And so I just want to say thanks to Venkatesh for not only being an example of that, but actually writing something that isn't just focused on just-in-time food delivery. And so I think the range of outcomes and the range of levels in the gig economy is one of the most interesting things about this book, hence the title, which I think is, is macro right, micro completely not what most people would think when they hear Art of the Gig, which I guess is the point. And so, yeah, I just want to, to open with that note. But let's get into the, the first of the three areas. So sparring, boxing your way to differentiation. So why am I drawn to this book and, and why have I started with sparring? Well, I've been an independent advisor now for five years. We're actually just a few weeks away from our five-year anniversary. I've probably been doing independent advising for about six years. And I've done a lot. I've advised universities, award-winning chefs, content curators, New York Times bestselling authors, Fortune 500 executives. I've worked with hundreds of professionals. And at times I've really struggled to communicate what it actually is that I do. And Venkat very much solved that for me with this book. Or he put the icing and the cherry on the cake. And I think sparring is such a beautiful metaphor and an analogy, not only just for my personality, but what it is I actually do on an everyday basis when I say I work with New York Times bestselling authors, award-winning content creators, chefs, executives, etc. People have actually told me in the past, you can't bluff me. And what I love about the sparring analogy is that fighters don't bluff in the spar. It's not a full-on bout, but you can't really bluff uh, a good sparring session. Uh, if you do, you'll get whacked in the face. So what is sparring? Uh, and I'd say to you, don't overthink it. It's just like it sounds. It, it's about going through the motions of attack versus defense, of counters, of parrying. But instead of actually throwing punches, we're throwing situations and ideas at each other. And Venkat says the goal of sparring is to improve the quality of the live theorizing executives do around their ongoing work. I would take executives and I'd replace it with the word decision makers. And what does it look like? It doesn't look like, unfortunately, us grabbing our gloves and getting into the ring, although maybe sometimes it should be that. It's really just conversations back and forth, usually for hours, over multiple months, over multiple years at its best, where we go back and forth on situations at work, ideas, things that were said yesterday. And that's kind of, that's kind of the motion that we work with over time and, and that's how we unpack critical ideas and usually and Venkat's so right here he says that you might talk for hours but in the end it's just one casual phrase or thought that ends up unlocking the critical idea and i couldn't agree more with that having done like thousands of hours of sparring that's usually how it goes you say something to your partner around hey i think you should frame it like this or yeah, this reminds me of that, or this is that. And everything is complete for them. If you've ever played chess, I really haven't played chess to a high level, but I remember when I went to chess club as a kid, all of the practice was around chess position. 
So the board would be set up in different ways, or there'd be different opening moves and positions you could make. I'd really think about sparring in a business context through that lens. Every day, the chessboard of your company or business is going to be slightly different for the, than before. Sometimes it will be exactly the same. And so sparring creates this ability to one, get into positions, two, recognize positions, and then three, when you're actually in the position, how should you attack and defend to get to where you want to go to actually then go and win the fight or get into a better position or be in a position, right, to grapple your opponent to the ground or your problem to the ground or force them to submit. I think grappling and submission is much more the philosophy of sparring than actually knockouts. And over time, what we do is we teach our clients basic offense, combinations, defensive techniques, parrying, countering. And the beauty of sparring is it's kind of like live action. So it's in the moment. It's at that pace. It's not a walk in the park. And so when these decisions actually go down or these conversations go down or these situations play out in real life, your partner is prepared because they've trained in a really hard way. So that's one of the beautiful things about sparring that I think Venkat taps into. And obviously you need to be mentally clear to spar. So actually clients that want to spar are telling you so much about their internal headspace when they actually react to this analogy in a really positive way. I've worked for executives that have been too busy to actually implement my innovation and insight. And it, it just ends up being a bad vibe for everybody. So what's great about sparring is number one, it self-identifies really interesting partners, AKA people like Venkatesh and, and myself. But second, it actually also is a bit of a litmus test for the executive because it requires such preparation and mental freedom and clarity, but the results are so high that like, yeah, you're only gonna get people that wanna go through a 12 week training camp before a big fight. So that's what is sparring. And I think it's fantastic. Why do executives actually need this, right? Sounds like therapy or coaching. Interesting. And I get why you'd think that. But as Venkatesh says, it's surprisingly hard for executives to find the combination of the three required traits in one reliably available person. I'll repeat that. He thinks it's surprisingly hard for senior executives to find the combination of the three required traits in one reliably available person. He writes so beautifully. The first is sufficient domain knowledge to allow shared thinking and in insider language, absence of conflicts or interests, and misalignments that get in the way of trust and the intellectual capacity to process at a typically demanding level. So those are the three things. Sufficient domain knowledge that allows you to talk like an insider, intellectual capacity, and then the actual space in your schedule and mind to process at a typically demanding level. Executives would be very hard pressed uh, to find that in one reliably available person. So what he's saying there is that could exist across four or five people, but the fact that it exists in one is where all the value is, because then you get the consilience and the synergy of all of that in one. So I think that's a beautiful answer and it's very different to therapy and coaching. And we'll talk about that more in a bit, but what's really interesting about sparring is I really feel like it's the new world of consulting or a, or a flavor or maybe the highest level of consulting. 
if we use this fighting analogy, right, there are black belts and there are green belts. I think sparring is black belt level consulting and advising. And I think big box consulting and some other stuff that people do is somewhere else. But I really think sparring is the highest form purpose of independent counsel. And what's really interesting is we're in this time right now where consulting's reputation has become a little tarnished. You just look at the, the number of pieces in the news about McKinsey, for example, the allegations that are being thrown their way by former employees, the projects that they've taken on, the money that they charge. Also, there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek banter around the value of MBAs and the fact that everybody goes into consulting. And so what I think is really interesting is Venkat talks about two schools of consulting that existed. One school is positioning and the other school is people. And I think what's really interesting about me is that I'm actually the people school, the narrative-based, story-based theory of change. But I'm informed by the positioning, which is more data-driven, metrics-driven, more HBS, classic big box MBA training. And I like to think of positioning as a predictable tube map where you map out an organization with the stops and the crossovers are where people intersect and their departments intersect. And you can easily see how you can get from one end of the tube line to the other, right? How you can get from North London to West London. But the people school, I think is a little bit more like Warhammer, where you spend a lot of time actually painting the individual characters, uh, understanding their blemishes, understanding their assets positioning them on the map based on their past behavior and then nudging them into kind of battle position over time. So that's a really interesting kind of flavor of just consulting's reputation is, is not tanking, right? It's still a humongous industry, but it has a few blemishes. That's what I'll say in a way that it didn't when I was really coming up. And so I think what's really refreshing about Art of Gig is like, Actually, there is some really valuable forms of consulting, arts of consulting, and this is one of them. So what is the actual value of sparring partners? You might be wondering. I think this line from Venkat is just perfect. He says, the value is knowing which nut to tighten to resolve a mysterious noise in a car. And he tells the story of a mechanic, or I guess of a, a guy whose car's making a weird noise, brings it in to the garage, mechanic opens up the hood, looks at the engine, twists one knob, and the noise is no longer there. And the customer is a little aggrieved that it only took him like 17 seconds, and he gets the bill, and the bill's 50 bucks. And Venkat says, there's a tension, right? Because here the knowledge was everything. Uh, the mechanic actually didn't bring any executional skill to the table. He says he could have consulted on which not to tighten for $49.90, and the customer could have done the execution themselves, saving 10 cents. And I think that's really funny and a really good way to think about it. But I also want to say that I've actually started to add executional capabilities on top of the sparring relationship, which I'll probably talk about maybe in our second meditations on Venkat's books. But I think that's a really powerful anecdote. And then I want to share maybe a little bit of, well, how do you actually get these gigs? Because you'll meet a lot of people, whether they're agencies or they're other kind of strategy consultants who like work for businesses. And the sparring relationship is less about, I think, working for a business. And it's actually about working for a leader who represents the business 
and seeing the organization and therefore the world through their eyes. It's a big and tiny difference at the same time. It could still be the business writing your checks, most likely. And it's definitely the business that you put on your LinkedIn, right? Like you don't put the LLC of the executive on your LinkedIn. But if we're being really honest about the spa ring and the value of it, it's really about the relationship with the executive and his or her relationship to the company. And that's your kind of leverage point. That is very different than coming in as a contractor or an agency or a, or a gun for hire for an organization that's you know, running towards some type of deliverable. And I struggled with that for many years, actually, of, of just sharing that. But I think Venkat's actually given me the language uh, to talk about that. So that's how I'd really think about it is like, you are in many ways the sparring partner of one of the starting five for a top basketball team, basketball team in this case being some type of organization, right? So you're not on the floor with them every night at practice, but you are actually downloading, hey, this is how practice went today. This is how the game went last night. What do I need to do to improve? And there's a real beauty, I think, to that relationship. You might be wondering how these relationships actually come about. And what I love that Venkat says is he's really good at basically taking all the best parts of consulting, but not being defined by any of the worst parts. It's the classic Virgil Lablo, a remix is just changing 3% of things. I think Venkat's probably changed close to 30 or 40, but there are some fundamentals of consulting that are fantastic, right? There's a reason why people are attracted to do it and it's become such a big thing. It's just not all of it, right? In its current form, especially in the big box form, is that attractive or valuable to everybody else? That's the nuance of this conversation that fortunately for some reason just doesn't come through on the internet anymore. But Venkat says to build relationships that allow you to be an exception to the anti-consultant rules or barriers. He's referring to effectively some organizations that all have rules in place. Like, hey, we don't hire consultants or we, we don't spend more than this on consultants per year. Or if you want to hire a consultant, they have to go through this RFP process. And so he admits you have to keep yourself honest here because there's a lot of cronyism that could go down. But there is such value to actually building relationships that way where you basically get all of the big box fee the brand the prestige without any of the downsides of a net 180 day payment cycle a massive procurement process where you get bullied on price and a litany of presentations right there's a speed to sparring that's really awesome and obviously if you've ever watched any of your favorite fighters actually spar you know it's a good spa within the first five seconds, which is brilliant, right? There's just a time to value here that is unbelievable. And that time to value probably always comes up before you've actually signed a deal because you can, you can kind of see the motions. And then because you've got that time to value to kind of show, you then get to skip the line on a lot of other things. So that's a little bit about sparring. You'll remember that the title is sparring, boxing your way to differentiation. I think I've explained sparring enough. Boxing is a really great way to think about how you move through a career or a problem or an organization. Now we're actually going to talk about differentiation. And part of this has been a real struggle for me. Like, how do I actually differentiate from being a therapist, a coach, a teacher, professor? And I think Venkat has the answer here. He says, I could position myself in a differentiated way around conversational sparring, 
and avoid anything that looked like a big three 100 hour grind. I could benefit from the perceptions of the consulting industry, but not be bound, limited or defined by them. That is absolutely beautiful. I could benefit from the perceptions of the consulting industry, but not be bound, limited or defined by them. I absolutely love that. And to me, that's what entrepreneurship is. That's the artistic element of entrepreneurship is not just saying, hey, we're going to blow everything up and start from zero, right? It's like, okay, let's take the parts that we love, forget absolutely everything else, stand on the shoulders of giants that we enjoy, but we're going to remix this and we're going to create a new sound, as Jay Dilla would say. So I love that. Venkat talks about differentiation through the lens of beefs. So his first differentiating point was one that he's just a conversational sparring partner. And there just aren't that many of them. From my experience, from reading his book, I just get the spidey sense that there aren't that many of us. And I, and I think it's because, and we'll talk about this in a bit, it's not easy. Uh, you need to have all those traits, domain knowledge, the ability to think in insider language, big intellectual kind of capacity, all in one readily available person, right? That is not easy for executives to figure out. And so, yeah, that's the value here is he was able to differentiate by calling himself a conversational sparring partner. But then he talks about beef and he says, the correct answer to differentiation is that you pick a beef worth picking, but not too strongly. 20% beef to be precise. I joke, this sounds like my grocery order, right? Lean versus fat. But this is really interesting. He's saying you want to beef with people because by beefing, you're kind of saying, hey, we fundamentally don't align on a few things. So I'm calling you out, right? But don't make it 100% beef because then people are just going to get pissy and you could get into a real fight. Make it 20% beef. And that is just brilliant. And, and, and you, could, you could take this analogy further. If you actually talk about ground beef and you, you get different lean versus fat, percentages there's different sizzles you don't need any olive oil but you don't want to you don't want to overcook anything right you want there to be a certain level of pink there might be some seasoning but this idea of 20 percent beef i think is fantastic and he says differentiation is the right amount of beef in your positioning notionally about 20 percent. i think it's a phenomenal way to think about differentiation of just like okay i'm here and i'm this business and i represent these things these are the things I see in the market that I don't believe. Let me find 20% that I can remix on and I can go to bat for that. That way you're not alienating the people that are representing, right? The other 80%, they then might admit, actually, we always hated that 20% too. And then you kind of sail through as sort of a, hey, you know, you were right on that. that thanks for challenging us. Instead of, hey, you just put down our entire life's work. And, and that's something I've really had to learn too. And he says, you know, all indie consulting positioning that works amounts to, it doesn't have to be this prevailing orthodox way that you've been disillusioned by. There is another better way. And here's how you go that road. And usually you as the advisor, you're the path to that independent road. I also love that Venkat says, you know, use the Warren Buffett rule, praised by name, criticized by category. So I hope you're seeing the kind of connection there uh, between sparring and differentiation. Number one, sparring as a concept is a huge differentiation factor but two venkat getting really focused on the beef i think is important especially in this internet area that's how people get attention right they like create beefs between a lot of different people that's how they get attention 
And I love that he says, embrace what you embrace with doubt and qualifications. Follow your truth where it leads you and not your adversaries where they draw you. Openly acknowledge any motivating resentments and set them aside. You don't have to pick every battle, but you do have to pick a few. You don't have to pick every battle, but you do have to pick a few. Disengage from the rejected way. Do not seek to, to destroy it. Firmly reject resentment-driven supporters who want to fight for you. Be kind. If you forget every other rule, don't forget this one. I really like that. Follow your truth where it leads you, not your adversaries where they draw you. And then you don't have to pick every battle, but you do have to pick a few. I think there's such magic in that. So now let's talk more about why is it, why is it hard to become a sparring partner? We, we talked about why it's hard for executives to find them. But now let's actually talk about why it's hard to become one. And, that, and that's connected, right? Like when there's a rare book or a piece of music or an early album that's out of print, the reason it's hard to find is because it was hard to produce or it's no longer being produced anymore. And I think you could argue that like it is actually really hard to be a sparring partner in this world we live in right now of, of distraction, of trends, of tiny micro pieces of content. But he says that, Venkat says that being a sparring partner calls for a particular temperament and personality. He doesn't think it's learnable, which I think is fantastic. Everything now on the internet, people are saying, hey, I've got this course, we can teach you. It's probably not true, right? And there's a little bit of disingenuousness in that, but we'll, we'll maybe touch on that later down the road. But he says being a sparring partner calls for a particular temperament and personality. It's not learnable and a particular mode of being attuned to others, which he says is learnable. Unlike a therapist or a life coach, a sparring partner does not support inner work, except occasionally as a side effect. Psychological insight into human nature is helpful, but is not central to effective sparring. What is central to effective sparring partnerships is an actual understanding of the business domain and the organizational environment. But actually being able to think on your feet with that knowledge is a different matter altogether and the other half of the problem one most people will fail at. That is magic, right? Lots of people have understanding of business domains and organizational environments, and that absolutely can be learned, right? By reading, by being in those environments. But he actually says the part of this that is so hard is being able to think on your feet. You have to know what shot to pull and where to move your head. It doesn't matter if you have a perfect uppercut on the heavy bag. You need to be able to move and do that in a live action, right? And, and it creates some kind of energy and gravity around that. Um, he says, executives seeking sparring support often unconsciously look for sparring partners they can talk to in their own language without having to constantly explain themselves, dumb themselves down, or having to provide quick tutorials on basic working concepts at every conversational turn. I would summarize this by saying sparring partners are phenomenal systems thinkers because if they can draw the system, they can learn the system, they can understand the organizational environment, and then they actually know how to pivot on their feet because they know what part of the map they're on. That's at least how I think about my own talents. And when I meet other great systems thinkers, I'm like, wow, okay, they've got one trait, right? One trait of the video game character that they could use to become this. but often they'll lack something else, right? As Venkat says, it's, it's not that these traits are impossible. It's just rare to get them all inside of one person. He says, you have to know a lot and showcase what you know just to get in the game. And you have to be willing to learn a lot 
very rapidly and efficiently at short notice to stay in the game. It takes years of being interested in business and technology and keeping up. But fortunately, it's not a specialized kind of interest or attention. Whatever your reasons for your past interest and curiosity in business and technology, the fruits are going to be valuable in the sparring world. I think that is like fantastic because what I'd hate to see is how to become a sparring partner. I mean, I'm sure we'll see it, right? Some type of cohort-based course around how to become a sparring partner or some type of masterclass. And Venkat's basically saying, look, there, there are principles. And I think these, these principles are more shared in Vol 2 around this is a, these are some actual good truths as you think about external relationships. But in terms of your interest and curiosity, like you cannot outsource that to someone else. And I think that's a big problem with a lot of the kind of modern business education I see on the internet these days, which is you, you can't rely on an algorithm, right? Or what worked for that person to dictate your interest and curiosity. Yes, there are some fundamental behaviors and skills we need, but above and beyond that, it's about your curiosity and how those things intersect. He says, the short version is this, there is no element of sparring anywhere in the typical executive development offering suite which is why I have an indie career at all. This gets the coaching versus advising versus sparring. The traditional executive coaching model does not work for sparring because most coaches do not have the right background to serve as sparring partners. Other elements of the leadership development world do not address the need either. People in that world do acknowledge the need, but genuinely leave it alone as an area to be covered by mutual peer-to-peer -peer support. I can absolutely confirm that which also does not work great for reasons I've already pointed out. Said differently, even if you had a peer who was a great sparring partner, they are a bit contaminated, right? They are working on their own P&L. They're working for maybe somebody else. They have different goals to you. You're ultimately competing in some way, even though you are collaborators, and they're thinking from inside the system. So again, the value of sparring comes from having those three traits inside of a person, but also the fact they must be external to the system and the map and therefore the world that you're in. The real value of sparring is what Venkat, and this might be the, the best three, three words I've ever seen, obfuscated chess postman, which he says is applying learnings from one gig to another in real time by creating suitable abstractions to port your new learnings without compromising confidentiality. The entire consulting industry is built around this. I, I, I got to agree with him. I, I, I think a better word is you're almost like a wizard, right? You can exist in multiple places and spaces throughout time. Sometimes you can literally pour into those spaces immediately and you have to find a way to basically say, okay, I've seen this before or I've seen this pattern or I've seen this position or I've seen this punch coming. This is how I'd suggest you move if you want to be in this space at the end of the round. But you've got to do that in a way where you can't spill the beans, right, on the confidential details of a specific business. And that is as much of an art and as much of a science as the actual sparring skill is. The final thing I'll say on sparring before we move on to area two is, he's got this fantastic flywheel, which I'll be sharing on the screen as you watch this. And you look at the, the kind of OODA loop, I guess is what he calls it, um, for sparring. And I think it's really interesting. OODA stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. Effectively, decision-making model the military invented. 
Um, but the flywheel itself is interesting, right? Because what, what is a flywheel? It's a visualization of a system. And, and the lines represent gravity, but also compounding positive feedback loops that almost become virtuous cycles. So, so as you put more pressure on one area, AKA you help the executive observe, that then creates more velocity and gravity orientation, which then drive decisions, which then drives actions, and then everything starts again. So what I think is actually really cool is, is sparring's really sticky. Because if you build a special relationship or a client where you get really good at the observation, right? You get really good at helping them orient, orient they act, they decide, it just repeats. I, I think another way to put this is almost like you're playing a video game and you unlock different parts of the map. Could you imagine going halfway through that game and then saying, I'm going to start a new character? It doesn't really work. The value is that you were on the journey with them, you learned the skills with them, you saw what to use in the battles, and you use that insight to defeat all the future bosses and unlock new areas of the map. So sparring is actually a really sticky product if you can find the right relationship and the right problem set and, and the right point of extraction integration. And I don't think a lot of people give consulting credit for being sticky, maybe slimy, but actually sparring is very sticky and has a lot of the virtuous feedback loops that we would associate with a great viral SaaS product. So area number two, I call guru versus pundit, being quiet versus talking loud. And Venkat says, for better or worse, getting into the sparring partner business means coming to terms with a growing perception of a guru factor around what you do, even if you are younger and less experienced than your clients. This is a fraught business. It creates serious reputational jeopardy. There is a fine line between business guru and laughing stock, or to use a more appropriate modern term, LOL cow <laughs> or low cow. I'm not sure what that means. That's really interesting. Um, and I really want to go deeper on this idea between guru versus pundit. Venkat says punditry is the result of an instrumental approach to appreciative knowledge. Gurudan, by contrast, is the result of an appreciative approach to instrumental knowledge. I paraphrase that to say pundits use words to create attention, buzzwords. Gurus are actually more interested in you becoming that word or in fact, redefining it for yourself. So let me repeat that. Venkat says that punditry is the result of an instrumental approach to appreciative knowledge. Gurudum is in fact the result of an appreciative approach to instrumental knowledge. I would paraphrase that to say that, look, pundits use those words to create attention, to create an identity. Whereas gurus are actually more interested in you becoming that thing. So actually manifesting that identity in real life. And so he says to be a guru of something is to look at the world through that thing rather than being put in a box defined by that thing. And, and to me, this is the difference between being the community guy on Substack and Twitter or in the top 10 search results for that word versus someone who just puts on his community shades in the sunlight and looks at the world in that way and then takes them off when he's done. And I think we need more gurus. We've got too many pundits pretending to be gurus. 
And we actually just need more silent gurus. We need more Jedis. And I'll get to that Star Wars analogy a bit later. Venkat says about 90% of your effectiveness as a sparring partner derives from the depth of your appreciative worldview developed and expressed through critical reading, writing, podcasts, and talks. Only about 10% depends on your in-session sparring skills. In this, sparring is similar to negotiation. In negotiations, 90% of your success depends on the preparation you do before you sit down at the negotiation table. Only about 10% depends on your negotiation skills. So that's a really interesting way to think about sparring. He says the focus is figuring out the right answers, finding the people who believe in them or can be persuaded to believe in them, and then acting on them to solve problems, thereby learning whether you were actually right. He says your brand is how people remember who you are. Your guru factor is the perspective people come to you for. I think it's the, the shades. What, what shades and what lenses do you have? This is the second most important thing. You learn to see differently enough shades to sustain a guru factor shtick if you're fundamentally consuming different inputs than most people who talk about the things you talk about. That is why in a world that's become obsessed with pundits or I guess a medium now in content that's forcing everybody to be a pundit, perfect example, hey Cornelius, where's your YouTube video on community? Why isn't it in your Twitter bio? right? That's the reason why these pundits will never become gurus because you've got to actually immerse yourself in different inputs to actually get the different outputs. And algorithm-based discovery it is forcing everybody to niche down and be that thing. And that's why there's a bit of a chasm, I guess, between gurus versus pundits. And I think it's fantastic. So Venkat provocatively says how you see is a function of what you've seen. If you've seen the same things as everybody else, AKA you've got the same algorithm as everybody else, it's hard to see differently from everybody else. So strangely enough, to uncover a guru factor, it's actually better to immerse yourselves in topics that are demanding, AKA they're time consuming, they're challenging, but not actually wildly difficult. He says, is your relationship to appreciative knowledge closer to punditry or gurudom? He also says, and I think I actually disagree here, but I want to share it anyway. He says, pundits prioritize taste while gurus prioritize insight. Is guru doing what you actually want? I disagree. I think pundits prioritize trends and then you create what you prioritize. I think gurus actually prioritize taste and taste is insight. And insight creates taste. It's another version of that kind of self-reinforcing flywheel. So Venkat says, what are you a guru of? If gurus develop reputations, what are you a guru of? And I think that is a really interesting question. And like I said, I think we actually mistake pundits for gurus and then critique gurus for not being pundits. Okay, Cornelius, where's your YouTube video on X? Why isn't it in your Twitter bio? How would I know you are that thing? Well, because I am this thing and I'm speaking to you. And that's the value of sparring. It's actually conversation as a product, which is all that matters. Absolutely all that matters. So moving on to our third area, anti-indie. Building your Mandalorian armor. Anti-indie, if you hadn't already realized, is, is a take, I think, on anti-fragile. And anti-fragile is defined as a system where capabilities increase with stress or chaos. Said differently, disorder makes it better. It makes it stronger. 
So it's a really interesting question of just, okay, at the end of the day, indies are small businesses. So is there ways in which gig economy, small business careers, AKA sparring, could be made anti-fragile by design? And Venkat provides a fantastic breakdown of, of how he thinks about that. And he talks about this idea of building your own robot suit. I prefer the concept of Mandalorian armor, if I'm honest, just because I think robot has the wrong connotation and makes you sound stiff and people are fearful of robots. Whereas maybe it's just because I've been watching Mandalorian, but this idea of a creed, this idea of this is the way, like I really believe in that, of actually the sparring consultants, we're in this early moment. And so we're actually defining our own creed we're defining our own foundations and we are saying this is the actual way to get something done. But also because at least in volume two, Venkat actually brings us back to the historical meaning of the word freelancer. It came from freelancers, which literally meant in the European Middle Ages, a mercenary knight with no fixed allegiances. That's what a freelance was. So anyway, he, he talks about building a robot suit which we'll talk about. We'll talk about the elements of the robot suit, or I guess I'll share the different functions of my Mandalorian armor. And he says, look, there's a holistic test for if your armor is working. If you've designed your robot suit, my armor, right, it should become almost invisible to both you and the people who see you operating. You should feel a sense of freedom and control from the inside. And from the outside, exclude a sense of intuitive agency. People may see you fumbling and stumbling. They may see you graciously working through trial and error experimentation, but they should get a sense that you know what you're doing. Get your inner game going right, invisible suit, visible performance of real agency. I think that's absolutely beautiful. And he goes on to break down seven elements of the Mandalorian armor, or I guess seven elements of the robot suit, what I'm calling the Mandalorian armor. The first is self-management, which he defines as learning to program yourself. He says, think of self-management as programming yourself like a robot, which I think is, is really, 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 really fantastic. I think that's something that we, we can all master. I think it's very difficult to master. It takes years. And like without self-management, forget anything that he just shared. This is all downstream from being able to manage yourself and your time. On the concept of time, the second piece of the suit and the armor is self-structuring. Um, he says, think of self-structuring as creating an operating environment around yourself. So I think that's digital and physical, right? He talks about the fact that co can't run in an operating environment, or there are ways to set up operating environments to make code work better. Think of this as your office, right? Your apartment, your mise en place, your digital detritus or your lack thereof, right? The way in which you structure your notes and you work clean, for example. Great book by Dan Charnas on the topic. So that's number two. Number three is self-direction. This is really interesting. He says, sense making external reality by making your own maps. Think of self-directing as making and maintaining your own maps, location, awareness, and movement. It's easy to draw a map, harder to first it in a way that you care step after step after step. That is so powerful. 
because self-direction is basically getting to, okay, if you've actually got these skills and you want to play this gig game, that's one thing. And, and there are steps you can take to play the game. But how do you set this up so that you are feeling as good about the 1,000th step as the first step? That's the real challenge and it's ongoing. The fourth is self-defining. He says, architecting a permissions identity for yourself. And he says, what does doing the right thing mean to you? And I, and I think this is really around defining the feelings that you want to follow the work, not the money, not the audience, not the prestige or the cachet, but the feeling and the feeling that you're doing the right thing at, at all times, or at least trying to do the right thing at all times, I think is so valuable and giving yourself the permission to attack that connected to that number five is self-ceremonializing. And he talks about this as like creating a UI and a packaging, which I think is really valuable, right? Like printing business cards, even if you have no one to give them to building a beautiful personal website, right? Creating an external brand, the way you dress, right? The haircut you have, the camera you use. I was even thinking, I just started a radio show. Why didn't I buy an on air sign that I could put on as I record, create that UI because no one's going to create that for you in the gig economy. You've got to produce it yourself. And that almost gets you in the headspace to start building and doing the things that you really should be. Sixth is self-pacing. So sense making time by making an internal clock for yourself. Self-socializing is number seven. Architecting a network identity for your social environment. I think this is really interesting, right? Like you're assuming you're leaving an office. You're leaving all semblance of colleagues. You're leaving all semblance of a conference circuit if you're going out on your own, it is really important to then redefine and rebuild your own social structure. You can't go without one whilst you must consume different inputs, right? In order to be good at sparring, you, you can't just become a complete recluse, right? You, you can't just become Walden. I've long thought that. Uh, you can have elements of your year that look like Walden, but ultimately you need to be out there in the world grappling and sparring with your ideas in real time. And so I think what he's talking about is make sure you set up that social structure. Now, I'd love to have a conversation with Venkat and because one of my first questions is, well, what comes first in all of this? And do you have everything at one time? Can you get away with having 50% of things, 75% of things, right? Does one of these things generate more value? I've obviously got my own take on that, but I'm not going to include that in this episode. I think I might write my answer. Um, so that's the kind of the breakdown of the Mandalorian armor, which I think is fantastic. But I will also share that Venkatesh says there isn't really a study on how small businesses could be more anti-fragile. But if there was, and he, he, references a, he references, I think, a professor who has looked at this question, there's two things. There's being open to new experiences, and then there's just pure financial conservatism, runway, profit. And on that point, he says there's savings, but then there's also having a spouse or being with someone who has a job and who's willing to support your risk-taking and backlog, backstop your thirst leaf with their own stability. And I, I would say it's having a wife who's, who's had a W-2 and is always supporting me being independent. I cannot underline the value of that. So look at the Mandalorian armor in an aspirational sense. I think it's intellectually stimulating and fantastic, but also you know, get the basics right. Talk, give yourself runway, right? Give yourself savings. 
to set yourself up for the best chance to, to go attack something. Um, and yeah, you, you don't want to just hedge yourself against these risks because um, they're real. So those are three areas of this book that I think are fantastic. I just want to end with some quotes that I think are just absolutely drop dead. Uh, and then I'll let you get back on with your day. So first quote, do not accept work when broke that you would reject when flush. Just absolutely, absolutely brilliant. And obviously you can start to contextualize, right? These quotes against some of the things we just talked about, AKA financial conservatism. Number two, say yes or no to gigs against your instincts 10% of the time. Why 10%? I can't wait to ask Venkatesh that. Number three, never assign homework the client didn't ask for. I think all the schoolboys and girls and us know what that means. Number four, maybe my favorite, the work ends when the story ends, not when the last check clears. Number five, I think everybody on Twitter could learn from this. The opposite of every great playbook, aka Twitter thread, is also a great playbook. Number six, great truths are eternal and unfalsifiable, but that doesn't mean that all great truths are equally true at all times. Phenomenal. Seven, great, great playbooks never go away. They are simply rewritten for new eras through cycles of prominence and obscurity. Eight, a bicycle in a state of balance is upright when taking corners, but a sailboat might lean strongly in the direction you need to go. As this war of ideas unfolds, you want to be a sailboat, not a bicycle. Number nine, the entire value lies in knowing which nut to tighten. Number 10, with apologies to Chris Dixon, for what the clutch class does on evenings and weekends, everyone will be doing in 10 years. 11. If you've ever read a HBR case study, you've probably had that uncanny sensation of looking at the business problem-solving equivalent of stock photography. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this. This was my first meditation on a book I've absolutely loved. Like I said, the, the really just the second truly brilliant book I've read on the last five, six years of a huge part of my career. And so I just want to say thank you to Venkatesh. I think this book was fantastic. Hopefully you've enjoyed this meditation. I can't wait to hear what you think. I'm very open to your counsel and, and advice on how to make this even better. Obviously, there's a bunch of different things that we talked about and areas we can go into. But I hope this gives you a feel of if you were approaching this book with, I'm only going to read things that are timeless. These are the aspects that you can take from this. And I think this book pairs wonderfully as an entree to Million Dollar Consulting. I don't think it should come before Mineral Consulting and maybe in volume two, I'll talk about where volume two comes in this kind of triple stack trifecta sequenced order uh, around being an indie. Anyway, I've been Cornelius. This is Everyday Radio and I hope you enjoyed our meditation on Venkatesh Rao's of the gig volume one.